Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Timothy's Table, a part of the Timothy Network. This is a place where we talk to and learn from different Pauls and different Timothys of today's generation. My name is Taylor Fairbanks, and alongside my very good friend, Aaron Holloway, we are on a mission to do everything that we can to help equip and impact the next generation of leaders in the church. And we've teamed up because unity is important to us. And we believe it's important to the church. And God gave us a vision to try and exemplify what we believe unity can look like in the realm of podcasting. And if you haven't already, I highly, highly, highly times 800 recommend going back and listening to AJ um, via the Timothy Project as he has blown minds (laughs) on kingdom management. It is quality anointed teaching that I believe is so needed for today. So if you haven't already, go back on this podcast and listen to his episodes on the Timothy Project about kingdom management. As for this podcast, we are actually diving into our third edition of Timothy's Table. Um, Our first two were a part of a uh, two-part series, if you will, that we did uh, during a crusade in Bangladesh um, that was in September of 2018. And whenever we got back, I actually got the opportunity to sit down with the Paul and Timothy of today's episode, Bishop Jerry Dean and Levi Golden, who both are out of uh, Pentecostals of Bossier City. Of course, Pastor Jerry Dean being the pastor there and Levi Golden. At this time, he was just appointed as youth pastor, and it's been almost a year since then. And he has absolutely crushed it. Uh, they just had Revive, which is a big youth conference that they do with James Wilson, and it was a smashing success. And uh, if you are not aware or familiar, rather, with Jerry Dean, um, sorry, Pastor Jerry Dean, he he's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. Um, he is seriously one of the coolest Uh, most down-to-earth pastors you'll ever meet in your life. Both of them are amazing men of God. Both have incredible insight and giftings. And I am not going to lie, Jerry, Pastor Jerry Dean, sorry, (laughs) he just has that name where you feel like you can just say it because he's so cool and and so chill. He just sounds like a like like this this cool barbecue guy from Texas, Jerry Dean. But Pastor Jerry Dean is a giant spiritually. But he makes you feel like you're his best friend. And he does that with everybody that he knows. And I love that. And in this podcast, you're going to feel that. He talks about his call to ministry, obstacles that he faced as he launched into ministry. And one of the craziest stories on how he overcame the fear of people to become one of the world's greatest advocates for missions. He's a hero of mine. Levi has has become one of my best friends, and I'm so thankful for them both, and I want you to go along with us. We're going to head to Bossier City to sit down with Bishop Dean and Levi at Timothy's Table. Hello, my name is Taylor Fairbanks, and you are listening to Timothy's Table. This is a place, a podcast for young ministers of all ages, all walks of life, men and women, to listen to the voices of Paul's and Timothy's of today, 
to equip, to be equipped, to be empowered, and ultimately to be launched into ministry for the kingdom. I'm really, really excited about today because I am sitting with one, a very, very close friend of mine who is a dynamic man of God and Levi. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was just saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's no way. No, the other one is, is, is a hero of the faith, one of, one of my heroes, uh, Bishop Jerry Dean. And I am so, so thrilled about it. Bishop Dean has been the, the, the pastor here at Pentecostals of Bossier City for how many years? 30 years. 30 years. 30 plus. 30 plus years. And then Levi. Levi, I met Levi in Nicaragua uh, at a crusade there. And he was uh, videoing, help, helping video the crusade. And we connected so, so well. And, and we've been friends ever since. And now he has recently been made youth pastor here at POBC. And so we're just going to listen to a conversation uh, between them and uh, listen to Bishop Dean talk about ministry, talk about his history with ministry, and let Levi lead that conversation. Every so often I may jump in, but for the most part, this is just going to be a conversation between a Timothy and a Paul uh, speaking about the things of ministry to encourage someone listening. So, Levi? Yeah, let's just dive right down into the uh, first question. Pastor, when did you first feel called to ministry? Uh, I don't have a I don't have a time a pinpointed time. My father's a preacher. Uh, I'm the middle of five boys, and I don't remember when I didn't feel like I would go into ministry. I remember when I when it came time to make decisions about after high school what I'm going to do. I do remember wrestling in prayer, uh, a lot of tears. My two older brothers both went into ministry and had gone to Texas Bible College. So I think that was my biggest stumbling block is that worried about people saying he's just doing what his brothers did. It was Vietnam days, and... You thought about all of that. People say, he's dodging the draft, you know, he's going to Bible college, you're good at deferment. However, uh, I was able to put all that aside through, through some prayer. And the, 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 uh, I'm going to tell you one little story when I was uh, very young. Uh, I had a vision, and I never told this vision. I was, I don't know how old I was, eight, nine may not have even had the Holy Ghost yet. We were in a very small church in Central Texas, Deion, Texas, and I, I had a vision at church one night. I guess it was a vision. I don't know what it was. But I was in this big round building. Uh, we rarely ever ventured too far from home. Uh, I'd never been in a coliseum. I don't know that I had ever seen a Coliseum, but I was preaching in a Coliseum. It was just a round building. Now, I had four brothers. You did not advertise this. Uh, you would, I'd have been like Joseph. I'd have been laughed at. But uh, I never forgot that vision. It came and went through the years, you know, but in, I don't know what year the General Conference was in Tampa Bay, Florida, but they asked me to speak at the Global Missions Service and when I walked to the pulpit that night, I knew instantly 
I'd never told a soul about this vision. I knew instantly that this was the vision. I knew it instantly, wow. Wow. that I was living in that vision. But uh, I just kind of knew, I don't know why, I just kind of felt like from a very young age, I don't remember when I didn't feel like I was going into ministry. I don't remember it. And probably some of that influence was just living in my home, being with my dad, being around my dad. My dad was first generation uh, apostolic. He gave up everything to pursue his calling. He gave up brand new home, a great job, four boys, another one on the way to take a little small church that was meeting in a house in McGregor, Texas. He sacrificed something I'm not quite sure I've ever really done, but he gave it all up. So my, my dad made ministry look like Exciting! This is something I want to do. Dad never pastored a larger church until I had left home, but he was always excited about it. So that's kind of an answer. I know a lot of people say, well, I had this moment, this place, this message, that service, youth camp, camp meeting, youth rally, uh, NAYC. I've heard people tell all of these things, and I don't relate to it because mine goes further back than my memory does. So the hesitancy was... I didn't want to just copy my brothers. But here's what happened to me. I was working at a bank when I was in, a, in the 12th grade, senior. I, worked, I went to school half a day, and it was a program where you go to school half a day and you go work half a day. And I had followed my brothers. They both worked at this bank before I did. And so this was in uh, 1970. I was in the bookkeeping department. We filed checks the old way. I was the post guy, postmarked all the accounts. I did all this stuff. And I had a great report to bank. So the head bookkeeper, Gene Elliott, called me in one day as school was coming to a close. We sent, this was brand new, computers were brand new. We sent all of our stuff every night to Austin, Texas, and which was about an hour away. And then they would do this, what they call data processing, and they would send back this massive ream of dot matrix paper that would be like this thick. And it was all the bookkeeping from the night before. And so our bank decided they were going to invest in their own computers. And so Gene Elliott called me in and made me an offer. We're going to send you to college. We're going to train you about computers. And if you want to do this... So I had to make a decision, but I never wavered. At that point, when that decision came to me, I never wavered. I made that decision, and I told him I was going to be a preacher, and he kind of threw his pen on the table and said, I knew you were going to tell me that. <laughs> so I went to Bible school, and uh, but that was the day, that was the defining moment. Are you or are you not? Right. right. What are you going to do? And I made my decision that day. Made a lot of mistakes through the years, but that was the day I threw my hat in the ring and said, I'm going to be a preacher. Six months later, I went home, went back to see my old friends at the bank, went charging back in the bookkeeping department. And uh, Gene Elliott got up and said, I want to show you our computers. Took me back in a room. Big as this office, it was completely full of computers. The discs were like four inches thick. The speaker around. <laughs> the computers filled the whole room up. Yeah. 
and you could just hear this whirring and all these discs were whirling and turning. And I, Gene Elliott said, this could have been yours, Jerry. You could have had it. Wow. So, you know, now I look back, I could have probably made a fortune doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't have done what I did right. and done that. So that's, that's my call. Yeah. Are there any good stories about when you first started a ministry? Let me, let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> My mother says, I had four brothers. Every one of us would wind up going to one of our Bible schools. Three of us went to Texas Bible College, and two of them went to Jackson College of Ministries. My mother says that I am the only one that left when she did not cry. Well, that kind of makes you feel funny. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, middle child, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> However, she told me, she said, Jerry, the reason I couldn't cry is you were so excited about going. Wow. My brother was there. We were going to be in the same apartment. He already, uh, he was a janitor. They don't call him janitors anymore. They call him some custodian or something. But he got me a job with Pasadena Independent School District. So I had a job waiting. I didn't have money. I didn't have a lot of money. But you got to understand, for me, going to TBC with in those days, it was our, by far our biggest Bible school. So probably three to 400 students, I don't know. Probably, I think there were like almost 200 in our freshman class. That was like me going on a year-long youth camp trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we, we grew up in churches with very few young people around us. So that was just amazing <laughs> to be able to do that. I went a year. I didn't apply myself. I played a lot of basketball, a lot of football, a lot of ping pong. Got a girlfriend. Uh, that didn't last. However, I made life, lifetime friends at TBC that are still my dear friends to this day. I came home, uh, went, went down, was getting ready to enroll the next year. I had to go early because uh, the public school started before the uh, – Bible school started, so I had to go back to my job. A few things happened. Some of my buddies backed out of coming. They didn't give me the job that they promised to me. When I, I went up back at the same place, and I went home for Labor Day weekend, and there was a preacher at our house. I remember this scene vividly. We were sitting at the table, and he was one of the old-style preachers that didn't believe much in going to Bible school. So my dad's sitting there, he's sitting there, and I'm sitting here, and he's saying, you going back to Bible school? I'm like, yes, sir. Why are you going to do that? Well, my brother got married that summer, so he's no longer on the campus, so I'm not going to be staying with him. Uh, I said, well, you know, anyway, in this conversation, he said, why don't you evangelize? I can't evangelize. I can't preach. Uh, he said, what if I get you five revivals? If I get you five revivals, will you go evangelize? And to this day, I don't know why my dad didn't speak up. <laughs> yeah. This this is kind of the way my dad was, though. Daddy kind of just let us make a lot of our own decisions. And uh, so greatest dad in the world. I'm not criticizing him for that. I would never dishonor my dad. But I've often wondered, Dad, why didn't you say... Let's pray about this. This guy goes, gets on the phone, gets me five revivals. So I, uh, I went back to Houston, got my stuff, and came home, and I started evangelizing. I was barely 19 years old. Wow. And, you know, 
I preached in a lot of very small, dry, dead, lifeless churches. Mm. Uh, I didn't have any bills. I had a little bitty car payment and paid my insurance. That was it. So that helped me. And if I didn't have a revival, I just went home, stayed at the parents' house. But uh, I, I, I wound up evangelizing five years. And if I went to a church with 80 people, I was in a big church. I mean, I thought I had gone ahead. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've, I've, I've got oh, wow. a lot of evangelism stories because in those days, you generally stayed in the home with the pastor. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a lot of good memories. The summers during that time, my brother Dan would travel with me. Dan was already very talented on the piano. And we sang, we sang old Happy Goodman songs and Hemphill songs and all of these old song, Southern Gospel, and that helped me a lot to have Dan going. Anyway, I remember going to one city, Ranger, Texas, and we were there for two weeks, and we probably had revival every night except two. It probably took rest night Monday and Monday the next week. So we were determined, my brother and I, we were going to fire this church up. So we decided, we had this song we sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, sweetest song I know. And so we sang it every night. And we, we, we would say, we're going to sing it till they shout. Well, they never shouted. <laughs> <laughs> I had very few good sermons. And I, they just, people were kind to me and let me come preach. And that was one of the better churches. Ranger was probably close to 80 or 100 people. So that was a better church. Yeah. And the old pastor there, his name was Lamb. He and his wife were so sweet, they loved me to death. And I wound up being asked to come back years later. We were married, pastor in Arkansas. They were without a pastor, and they actually asked us to come back and try out for that church. But we never felt it. We went back there and preached, but we never felt it. So that's how I actually got pushed out into the evangelistic field. I would tell everybody, really pray a long time and seek counsel before you do that. If I had to do it over... I would have I would have gone and got me a secular education. I would have probably gone. I would have probably stayed right there. They were going to pay for my schooling at the bank. I would have I would have let them pay for my schooling. Wow, would that not have been incredible today to have got in the ground floor of the computers and learned all the dot matrix mm-hmm. language and all of that? Wow. Yeah. Now I'm always calling for somebody to help me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, were there were there some initial insecurities or fears uh, you faced in regards to your calling? Uh, yes, I still have them. <laughs> I I still I still wrestle with some of those things. I was uh, here's my famous line now. When I was a kid growing up, I was OCD. I didn't know what it was, obsessive compulsive. Uh, disorder. I didn't know what it was, but it was really bad. God healed me when I was a junior, uh, sophomore in high school. It's, it's, it's a testimony. But uh, I also had a lot of just childhood fears that a lot of kids have today. But some of this was because of, I was OCD. Never heard of it. I was 37 or 8 years old. I read an article in a paper. I told my wife, that was me. That's what was wrong with me. <laughs> so I still have little touches of that today. Uh, like if I have unanswered mail, that drives me batty. <laughs> uh, if I have 
applications, you know. The that, red? Yeah. The red circle I just, over I got to do it. I just <laughs> got to do it. I don't want that on my phone. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I forgot the question. What was the question? Were there any initial insecurities yes, or fears? I had a lot of insecurities. I remember the Amarillo camp meeting, in, uh, the Texaco district camp meeting. Me and Dan were asked to sing. I think my brothers were there. We used to kind of sing together. But uh, I remember my leg shaking so hard that I actually leaned over like one of these Southern gospel singers, you know, they kind of lean over. I I leaned over to hold my leg down to keep it from shaking. That's how nervous I was, just scared out of my mind. I never went to a pulpit without some fear, just insecurity. I don't think I would change that. Right. I think that made me more God-dependent because I realized I I just, I don't know. I was at a general conference one year, and a dear friend of mine named David Hennigan, who's now deceased, was at the book table. And he picked up a book by Vance Havner, this old Methodist preacher, and he said, Jerry, you ever read any of his books? And I'm like, no, I haven't. Uh, I always loved to read. read so I, I always loved to read. Unfortunately, when I was young, I didn't read many Christian books. But he said, man, you can get a lot of great sermons out of this book. And I'm, I looked at him, and I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, man, he said, I've preached a lot of sermons out of his books. You can do that? You can, like, get a sermon out of a book? Nobody ever told me that. <laughs> Boy, that was a great day for me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like Harold Hoffman said, Jerry, I steal. I just steal from the best. So uh, I don't try to plagiarize a lot. I don't mind giving sources. There are very few, really, truthfully, there are very few Jeff Arnolds in the world who look at a text and see things nobody else sees. There's not a lot of people like that. Mm -hmm. And I want to take advantage of that. I I just, I'm convinced of that. what, the breaks that I had in my young ministry was I honored, I honored the ministry. I honored everybody. There were great men of God in those days. Uh, our conferences, you know, we'd go to general conference and we'd have seventeen or 18,000. It's, it's not as big as Youth Congress today, but we were in filling up big coliseums. I mean, this was the days of James Kilgore, J.T. Pugh, and... Uh, C.M. Beckton and uh, I, I could go on and tell you a lot of people, but uh, I so admired and honored these people. There was uh, my first district superintendent was named V.A. Gidrose, and I was literally he was he was the superintendent when I was going to youth camps. I was scared to death of the man. I mean, I had that kind of reverence for him. My dad honored preachers. My dad talked about great men of God, and so we grew up in that environment, and we so we were spellbound. Uh, me and my kid brothers all, we love to play football in the backyard, baseball, whatever sees basketball in the driveway. When V.A. Gidros came to our house to preach one weekend, we sat at the table spellbound. But honoring these men uh, is what later on turned out to be door openers in my life. They opened doors for me. They promoted me. They helped me. They pushed me. For instance, our first pastor was in Morrow, Arkansas, country church. 
There's nothing there but a church and a parsonage, and across the street is an old house, all right? That's all. We're in a bean field, a rice field, alternating years, beans and soybeans and then rice. <laughs> and it was Mesquita Haven. I mean, yeah. mosquitoes were unreal. Mm. Uh, but so we have, we're in a small section. My presbyter was named Bobby McCool Sr., and we love that man to death. He just... And I was young. I was. I started pastoring when I was 24, I believe. Well, this this guy, he just acted like we were his kids. I'm a day's drive from home. You call your parents once a week because it costs you to call. And they uh, probably the first year in that section, they voted me in as the sectional youth leader. Well, I threw myself into it. You know, I just I wanted to do a good job. Consequently. Uh, Brother McCool probably observed that in my honor for him. So when our youth president's job became vacant in Arkansas and Brother Clifford aged out, uh, Brother McCool was probably the biggest proponent and a couple of other guys in the district that had influence to push me, and I was voted in as the Arkansas youth president. And that probably opened up every door from that day on the rest of my life, yeah. including coming to Bossier. Uh, if that hadn't happened, you know, but showing honor of those people, you you know, I, I just, I grew up in a home where you didn't talk about preachers. Mm, yeah. You didn't talk about it. My parents didn't talk about anybody. Right. I didn't know there was such a thing as church problems yeah. until I was grown. I, di- I didn't know. Because if there were, we didn't know about it. Wow. But honoring those people, wow. And, you know, as the years went by, I had opportunity to rub shoulders and spend personal time with some of them. And they all, many of those guys came and preached for me here in Bossier before they passed. Uh, It was incredible. James Kilgore is one of the guys that influenced me to love missions. And it helped me. All right. All right. What are some of the... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Levi. That's, that's something that I think that is so key to your personal ministry. Bishop Dean is just an incredible pastor, but at the same time, man, you, you, you raise so much money for missions, and that is just a heartbeat of yours. And so I, I'd like to know when exactly... I may, and like you said, maybe there wasn't exactly a starting point. I could tell you exactly when it started. Let's, t- let's talk about it. Uh, I wanted to be a soul winner. I was scared out of my mind to talk to anybody about church. Wow. Just, we used to go knock doors on Saturday to give people an invitation to church. Yeah. And, I mean, it was like if nobody came to the door, I was thrilled. I don't know what I would have done if somebody would have said, hey, y'all, come on in. I, I would have panicked. <laughs> uh, but my father always had a, an amazing passion to reach the lost. And he didn't see a lot of fruit in his ministry until I was gone from home. And then he saw amazing fruit. Remind me, Taylor, I'll show you his Bible before you leave but we had a missionary at our church, and he makes this statement. He says, for every, f- and this is as I remember it. This is many years later, okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be real close. 
He said, for every $15 you give to missions, that converts to a soul. So in my teenage brain, maybe it was a cop-out for me <laughs> so I didn't have to maybe teach a Bible study or something. But I realized I can be involved in reaching a harvest even if I don't personally win somebody by supporting missions. So I never forgot that. But in 1984, my wife and I, uh, we were named President of the Year when we were youth president in Arkansas. One of the rewards of being named President of the Year was you you were given one of the AYC trips and your expenses would be paid and you became one of the chaperones on, on an AYC trip. They called it International Youth Corps then. So we got to go and we went to the Philippines. We went to Hong Kong, spent a few days, then we went to the Philippines. Going to the Philippines changed my life forever. And I remember flying home and on the, on the flight home, I was praying, God, help me not to go back to the pulpit and just beat the people up. Because I see these poor people who are so excited about Jesus. And the revival they were beginning to have in the Philippines was amazing. Churches were packed out. I saw, I, I preached in a gymnasium one night. They had to wait until a, a basketball tournament ended to set up the church in the gymnasium, bringing sound system, instruments, chairs, and 92 people got the Holy Ghost that night. I have a letter to my files from that pastor uh, thanking me for coming, you know, so that, that just messed with me. Uh, I would tell everybody that you, you need to go overseas, and I, I tell people also, don't just go to Europe. Yeah, I'm not against going to Europe, but you need to go to a third world country. Mm -hmm. You need yeah. to go see the people Smell the people. Right? <laughs> Feel the heat. Right. Right. See the sweat. Yeah. Sweat yourself and watch their excitement and enthusiasm. This is my classic line now that I've said over and over. This is my observation, and I've been to a lot of overseas places. The people who appear to have the least to praise God for praise Him the most. And the people who appear to have the most to praise God for, praise Him the least. Mm -hmm. That's my line. But that's how my missions burden started. Now, let me, let me put a P.S. on that. When they called me, when Dan Calk, the former pastor of, of the Pentecostal Bossier, called me, I was working at uh, World Evangelism Center in the youth department. And I said, the church would like for you to come and try it. I was 35 years old, getting close to 36. And we came, and we didn't know anybody here. I couldn't have picked a presbyter out of a 10-man lineup. I, I'd never met the presbyter. I didn't know him. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of people in the church that Gene and I had kind of met from years gone by in Arkansas because of family connections. But to say we knew them, we really didn't. So... It, this was not a deal where I had leverage. I mean, I, I didn't have any influence here, but they had already had a couple of men try out. But all the way driving from St. Louis here, I, I knew in my heart it was the will of God. And Dan Calk, who's James Kilgore's son-in-law, uh, shortly after we came here, he passed away of bone cancer. He had had a missions conference in 
that was one of the things I'd already planned to do. This first thing we do, we have a missions conference. And it's our number one mission. It's our number one meeting every year. And we it's a big deal here. However, there's a lot of great people in this church who were above average with their income. Okay? And this is what I've always said. They were more than ready to give. All they needed was somebody cast a vision. Brother Calk had started that before I came. So this church was destined to do that. I could never have done what I did here without this church. Right. I'm completely aware of that. But I believe that's one of the reasons God sent me here. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you believe is the greatest pitfall of this generation? Uh, leaning too heavy on the arm of the flesh. You got so many gadgets and tools and lights and computers and projectors and systems and yeah. Uh, I'm not against any of it. I love it all. I, I love it all. I, I I would use it more if I was more gifted in this. But you can't spend four hours programming lights and developing a key point and pray thirty minutes. I mean that's not the yeah. will of God. And that that's to me that's the greatest pitfall of thinking, hey, we can do this. For here's here's why I'm telling you that, because in the Christian world, they're going to outdo us on this stuff, big time. Not that we don't have gifted and talented people, we do not have the deep pockets they have financially, and they're going to have the biggest, the best, etc. It's going to be over the roof. I'm not against it. Please understand. We got smart lights in the church, and I found out a few times smart lights are not real smart. <laughs> uh, we've converted, spent a lot of shekels on some of that stuff, and I'm not against it. I'm not against it, but nothing, nothing will ever take the place of prayer right. and seeking God. Right. And the churches that I know that are revival churches have powerful prayer teams and ministries in their church. That's right. Absolutely. What do you believe the greatest strength is of our generation, this generation? I, I believe the greatest strength is, is the giftedness of this generation. They're brilliant people. Right. That is their greatest strength. Uh, some, I, I mean, some of the preachers, man, right now, it, it's not just that they're good preachers. I'm talking about young men. I'm talking about 20s, early 30s. It's, it's, we got these guys that are walking in the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah. They're seeing a demonstration. They're seeing all kind of things happen in their ministries, and they're young. Uh, they're very young. And I'm just, I just, I'm amazed by it. I'm, I'm amazed by it. We, it. To me, we went through a space of years there. I mean, there's always been pockets of this one and that one, and they, they do great. But today, man. I don't. Maybe it's because there's there's more visibility now. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I think God has just raised up this generation. For one thing, they've done what I just talked to you about. They've honored their elders. Right. Hmm. They've honored their elders. They bought into this. They believe this message we preach hmm. completely, and it's uh, you know they've they've learned the art of not only just preaching good. But uh, sticking with it, staying in it, sacrificing if they have to, 
one of the neat things about this generation is these, these lots of young men are not afraid to plant a church. I mean, they're like gung ho. I'm going to build. I'm going to plant a church. Right. I'm not. They're not looking for somebody to give them a church. I want to go plant a church. I'll work a job, which personally may be the new trend in our movement. And uh, probably people have people shoot me for this, but I think bivocational pastors will become become more and more and more. And what's going to happen? Instead of bigger and bigger and bigger churches growing and growing and growing, you're going to see more and more church plants. You're going to see more and more daughter works. You're going to see people branching out, spreading yes. out. Yes. And, and people don't realize this. David Gray from San Diego, who was a powerful, powerful Bible teacher, one of the greatest probably in, in my time of growing up. Uh, I got to sit at a table like we're doing right now. And I think Brother Gray had probably 800 people back in the early 70s. Do you know how rare that was? Right. I did not know this. He started eight churches out of his church. And he told us every time his church would fill up and he had no more room, he didn't want to build more buildings. He'd start another church. He said, I'd take maybe 200 people and send them out to a suburb that was unreached wow. and start a church. So this was an old, old concept, but you got to be really kingdom-minded. I want to go back to your missions deal. I want to tell you. If you have to hold on to everybody in your church, you better not cast a vision mission, uh, missions vision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. every year we have four or five kids wanting to go yeah. on AYC trips. Mm -hmm. uh, Baron and Jean Carson went on an AYC trip and they ain't come back. They'll never come home <laughs> and yeah. they never will. Uh, we've got several church planters out of our church. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but you got to be keen to minded to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. I've had more in number than we have now in this church. Mm. But I've told our church, quit measuring our church by who's sitting on our pew. Exactly. Measure our church by what's going on in Pennsylvania. And I, I can just start naming these places in Baton Rouge and Evangeline and on down the line it goes, you know. You just, you, you look at that. Uh, so, you know, we don't have anywhere to build a daughter work. Where am I going? Am I going to go... We have two churches in Bossier City. We got the north and south covered very well. There's 26 churches in my section. I guess I could go to Plain Dealing. They got 1,500 people, you know. Yeah. Uh, I can't go to Benton. Benton's got a church. Uh, we had a man start a church in Benton. I'm excited for him. We've helped him. Uh, we pray for him. But what, what I've chosen to do is we invest every year in one or two church planters with a monthly offering. Wow. And uh, all of those churches, all of those churches except one that I'm aware of are, are uh, except for two. They're all growing and thriving and doing well. Wow. And uh, some of them, most of them, the man who planted the church did not come from Bozier. Some of them did. I can name one, two, three, four who did come out of our church. So... That's the risk of having a missions vision. Mm -hmm. um, last question. As a Paul to a Timothy, what's a question you have for Timothy? To a question? You want to know the truth? There's three things I want to know. I want to know if you're praying. I want to know if you're a tither. And I want to know how much debt you have. Right. That's what I want to know. If you're not praying, get out of the ministry. Right. 
If you're not a tither, you're cursed. Right. You got everything backwards. Wow. If you got debt, you it's hard to get your feet off the ground in ministry. Yeah. You're going to get an opportunity to take a church or go somewhere, and their income's not going to pay your bills, and so you're going to have to say no. Yep. Those are those are huge, mm-hmm. and you know one of them is secular. If you look at it that way, money is not secular. Money is a tool. Right. The love of money is the root of all evil. I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. I had a young minister ask me recently. Uh, I'm, he's, he's thinking about going into ministry like plant a church. I said, what would your advice be to me? I said, in what order do you want them? I want number one priority. Get out of debt. Get out of debt. Financial pressure wrecks everything. Right. It'll wreck your marriage. It'll wreck your ministry. It'll wreck everything. So get out of debt and stay out of debt. That's right. Amen? Amen. Y'all got it? Yes, yes sir. sir. Are you praying? Yes, sir. Are you a tither? Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, yeah. And get out of debt. You as can of, do it. As of two months ago, we were completely out of debt. Uh, that's that's yeah. the way to do it. One I'm a Dave Ramsey freak. Uh, my wife and I at this stage in our life, at this age, we made up our mind a number of years ago. Uh, Jesus talks so much about money. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to read the book, The Treasure Principle by uh, Randy Alcorn. You need to read the book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. You need to read the book called The Wealth Conundrum by a layman named Ralph Duadera. If I say his name right, I don't know. You need to read those books, and you realize money's spiritual. Solomon said, money answereth all things. Yeah. Money answereth all things. And I, my wife and I, we made a commitment, and I made this missions commitment years ago. And you, few people will ever know how God has blessed us when we made a commitment in our personal life not to just get wealthy because we pastor a big church. And today, we're extremely blessed. The last two houses I've owned were halfway given to me. And they're not shacks. They're nice. Does that embarrass you? No. It puts some ammunition in my weapon. To say, look what the Lord has done. Amen. Look what the Lord has done. <laughs> look what the Lord has done. Wow. <laughs> That's the way it works. But to these young Timothys, talk to God every day before you talk to men. Uh, if you're not a reader, you got to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to learn how to read. You know, you gotta have you got to have people in your life, just like I had people in my life that helped me. Mm-hmm. You've got to have people in your life. Nobody's going to get this down by themselves. Right. It's just not going to happen. So you need, uh, you need, we all need help. And I realize that to this day. Two years ago, I asked Terry Schott, his wife was speaking at a women's deal here at our church. So they were going to stay over and do the weekend. So I asked Brother Terry to give me the morning or give me the day. I, I want you. And so he said, I'd love to. We, we meet up here at Starbucks, and he brings out a yellow pad, yellow legal pad, and a pen. 
And we sat down, he gets all situated, and he starts asking me questions. Uh, when do you pray? Do you pray every day? How much do you pray? Do you fast? When do you fast? What's the longest fast you've ever been on? Well, brother, he was firing them at me quick. And I finally stopped him and I said, man, am I on trial here? <laughs> he said, I thought you wanted me to help you. He said, how can I help you? I know nothing about your life. Wow. It brought back something to my memory. One year at men's conference, I was preaching about submission. And I thought, I want to I do something really big here. So I got a bowl. Brother Tenney was our superintendent in those days. I got me a basin and a towel in the middle of my message. I washed our superintendent's feet. I cried. I get home. I think I'm cool. And God said, so you're submitted to him, right? Oh, because that was part of my message. You know, Brother Tenney, I'm submitted to you. I'm washing your feet. He said, uh, how can you be submitted to a man who knows nothing about your daily life? Hmm. Nothing. Wow. He didn't know if you pray. He don't know how much you study. He never sees your financial report at the church. So what's the big deal? You're submitted to him? <laughs> I changed all that, and I changed it big time. I started sending Brother Tenney, along with some other men that I admire, our church annual financial report. I asked him to look it over, look at our missions given. Is it is it good in comparison mm. to what we got coming in? Mm. What do our salaries look like? Are these okay? I send one to my accountant every year who probably does taxes for seven or 800 preachers. Uh, Am I doing good in, in comparison to a man that pastors a church like this? Uh, I do that. That's how you get submitted. That's how you get submitted. But how can you be submitted? You know, that, that looked good for me, and I, it, was, it was a little moment where God chastised me. Yeah. Major. <laughs> there you have it. There's another question on there I want you to ask me about miracles. Miracles, yeah. What was it? <laughs> I, think, I think I know the answer to this. Well, what's one, some of the greatest miracles? Well, ever? probably the greatest physical miracle that I've ever personally witnessed happened in August this year when that little three-month-old blind meth baby was healed. Yeah. And just got a picture last week from Mark Dross saying, you recognize this baby, and the baby's doing great. Wow. Where was this at? Mattoon, Illinois. You didn't see the video? That's why y'all were in Bangladesh. Yeah, I see it. That's probably, and you know, it's kind of a neat deal because I've been telling the church, if you talk to the devil, look down under your feet because that's where he is. Right. So uh, the next morning I got up and I was in my little talk to God before you talk to man routine. And I'm saying, God, I don't know how to thank you. And the devil just kind of whispered to me, I know it was the devil because God wouldn't have said this. Maybe it was my insecurity. Maybe it was my flesh. Well, you didn't pray for the baby. I don't know that anybody prayed for him. He was in the altar service. And I looked under my feet because that's where the devil is. And I said, devil, I don't know what you're thinking, but you totally misread me. I could care less. Yeah. 
God gets the glory anyway. I couldn't. Right. Yeah. I couldn't open a baby's blinded eyes. <laughs> you think I'm gloating about that? You're crazy. Do you think I'm going to advertise it? You better know it, devil. Yeah, absolutely. You you better know it. But there are some miracles that I think are even greater, and that's the miracle of the new birth, right. yeah. the transformed life. This is what a pastor sees that an evangelist don't see. Yeah, he doesn't see the miracles of conversion that take place in the church mm. and then watch the transform life as it continues to grow over the years and grow and they right. never go back. Uh, people who could not break free on their own, mm. could not break free from ducks. I will tell this story, and I know we're about done, but we had a, uh, years and years ago, we won this guy. He uh, he was in AA, uh in AA, apparently, they tell you you need to go to church every week or go somewhere. And he was going to a church with his live-in girlfriend. <laughs> and he was going to a church here in town, a denominal church, whatever that means. And he's, he's ADD. He played in a rock band. He's got a ponytail down to his waist. He wears blue jeans, white shirt, uh, a big black belt with a big old buckle on the front, and black cowboy belt. That's all he wears. That's all I ever saw him wear for two years. But he says to her, after three Sundays in this church, he's trying to break free from a lifetime of alcohol and drugs. He says to her, I can't do that anymore. I cannot sit through that. It's killing me. She's like, what do you mean? He said, it's lifeless. I can't do that. She said, well, we'll go to Grandma's church next week, which was back when we were on Traffic Street. We were shoulder to shoulder, literally putting chairs all the way to the pulpit, pulling them out to have an altar service. And he walked into that environment of an amazing move of God, like y'all are experiencing right now, Taylor, and uh, scared him to death. I mean, we're talking about a guy that lived one year with a goal to get high every day, and he did it, and about ruined his life doing it. But he comes in, and he didn't change anything about the way he looked for two years. But he outshouted, outworshipped everybody else in the church, which was driving some of these traditional Pentecostals out of their ever-loving mind. When is he going to cut that ponytail? <laughs> you know. But we were patient. He got in some Bible studies, home Bible studies. Uh, today he's a church planner in Pennsylvania. This is years ago. But he brings. He kept telling me, "Pray for Doug. Pray for Doug." He's my friend. I used to do drugs with him. He's on meth. Doug comes in. Doug gets the Holy Ghost. Uh, Doug became an ordained minister. Doug prayed his nephew Chris through. Chris was on the platform last night playing the guitar. Okay? Wow. Chris's mother, Gwen, she was a coke addict. She was living with JP. Uh, Chris, Chris's mother, Gwen, came in. She got the Holy Ghost. Changed her life radically. She kicks JP out. Uh, JP marries another girl. They're going to one of our churches today in South Dakota. Uh, after a while, Doug's mother gets the Holy Ghost. Then it just never ceases to amaze me. Doug's father, who had been away from God for 50 years, comes in as a prodigal and prays back through. Mm -hmm. And this was, what, five years ago or six? I don't know. He never misses church, never. He's in his mid-'80s. I said to him about missing, I said, man, you never miss church. He said, I missed a lot of time. I wasted a lot of time, Pastor. I can't afford to miss anything. Mm -hmm. wow. But 
I call it a spiritual chain reaction. That's yeah. what an evangelist doesn't get to see. Right. A pastor. There are no miracles like that. Right. There are no miracles like that. Man. I, if I were a young minister, if I were Timothy, I would decide as a young minister, I am not doing this without the operation of the gifts. I'm yes. not doing it. Yes. Right. Uh, I came in to ministry on the tail end of what they call the latter-day reign when there was, there was actually a little pushback against some of the gifts of the Spirit because of the damage it had caused in the church. People took it to the nth degree and oil was dripping off of fingers apparently. It's just, it was a mess. And so I came in when there was a pushback literally in ministry against some of that, you know, called wildfire. <clears throat> so I never had anybody challenge me to pursue the gifts. Uh, I would do that. I'm probably more known for one sermon I preached it because of the times called for his great namesake. And I preached it to young ministers. That was my purpose. And I challenged them not to do ministry without this. Mm. Nathan Herod, one of our great young men, told me years and years later that he went home from that service and said, I'm not going to do ministry without the gifts of the Spirit. And the rest is history. He made his mind up. I would tell that to any Timothy. We don't have to do it. Brian Kinsey showed me. I talked him out of some sermon notes. And <laughs> he, he, he had this one line in there. I hope I can remember this right. We do not have to be manufacturers. We don't have to be producers. We're just a conduit. Yeah. I don't have to manufacture anything. All God wants me to do is be a vessel. Yeah, that he can flow through yeah. without me getting puffed up. There's a lot of things I don't understand about healing, the gifts of healing. I think we're living far beneath our privilege. I don't understand why they can see it overseas much more than we see it here. I do see that trend changing. Right. And for that, I am very, very grateful. You guys got to realize, and we'll say this and we'll be done. You got to realize when I evangelized, if two people got the Holy Ghost, it was like, can you go another week? Mm. Yeah. Can you stay another week? Mm. Wow. Uh, call Brother So-and-so and ask, tell him we've had revival breakout. We had two people get told to go. I preached in Dangerfield, Texas. A man stood up while I was preaching and received the Holy Ghost. The church went crazy. Found out later he had been seeking the Holy Ghost 12 years. Wow. That's why the church went crazy. Uh, so that was common. Billy Cole changed that concept in America. When he came home from Thailand, they said it won't happen in America. He came home and proved it would happen in America. And uh, I remember being in one of those meetings in Odessa, Texas, where, I don't know, I think 70 people got the Holy Ghost that night. These are the days where you tarried to get the Holy Ghost. Right. So a lot of these people who got the Holy Ghost were terriers. Yeah. And he lined the chairs up. He said, the Holy Ghost fell while they were sitting, where they were sitting on the day of Pentecost. So he made people sit down. He gave them instruction, and the Holy Ghost fell. But I remember I was an evangelist, so I'm in the preacher's homes, and I heard the talk. Oh, they didn't get the Holy Ghost like we did, you know. But there were great men in those days who knew they did get the Holy Ghost and see what happened today. We don't have people tarry anymore. Right, right. We don't have people, Terry, here in Bossier. If they want the Holy Ghost, they're going to get the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah. 
So don't try to do it without the gifts of the Spirit. You've got to have apostolic ministry. For, for starters, there's a lot of popular people in America today who are really, really good people that I, I don't think they embrace all the truth. And they, have, they are amassing huge crowds. Uh, they have huge fan clubs. And they are extremely sincere. They're brilliant, gifted men. They're all over America. They're all over America. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, I understand from things I've read, a lot of their growth is transfer growth. I understand that. People want to go where something's happening. I can't fault them for that. You know, who, who am I to fault somebody for saying, hey, I want my kids to be raised up where something's happening? I yeah. can't fault them. However, God needs to draw a line for us. Uh, one of the most exciting things I've heard in years came from a message at General Conference last week, week before last. One out of four Pentecostals in the world today are oneness Pentecostals. Mm. That is incredible. That's amazing. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so y'all are y'all are inheriting something. Right. Big. Right. Big. I was a young preacher, and J.T. Pugh stood in a pulpit, casting this vision. And he said, someday we're going to fill up football stadiums. And the crowd went ballistic. And they did it two summers ago, didn't they? Right, yes, sir. <laughs> they went to a football stadium. <laughs> Feel that joker. Oh, man. Someday they will not be able to have one NAYC. They will have two. <laughs> They'll have to have one on the west side and the east side because they want to have a big building, a big building to put them in. All right. That's what will happen. How do I know that? I will tell you how I know it. The biggest meetings we have are youth meetings. Yeah. Young people are buying into this. That's yep. right. That's They're buying matter. into it. Uh, the young people are driving our church right now. They're driving to worship in our church. That's right. They're front and center. Mm-hmm. They're the first ones in the altar. They're the last ones to leave. Am I right? That's Brother right. Levi, that's right. They're first in the altar; they're the last to leave. They're driving our churches. These yep. kids are going somewhere, and you know what's neat about that's it? Right. I know we have a few that leave. There'll always be some that leave. There'll always be some that trickle out and go. Uh, however, the bulk of them—they're buying into everything we preach and teach. They're—they're yep. they're done with the world. That's they right. don't want it. That's right. They respect ministry. They respect the elders. They—they're just like buying into this. That's and right. I mean. Uh, I, I go to Illinois last year. They called me and said, would you speak at our youth convention? It's the largest meeting in the year. It was David Brown. And I'm like, he called me, and I said, David, you know I just went on Medicare, son. said, <laughs> 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 that's, why, that's why we want you. Yeah. We have, we, we'll have young men speak, but we want one elder to speak. Yeah. It's a new day. I want these young men to preach me out of the pulpit. I, I, want them, I want them to preach me out of the pulpit. I still get invites to go preach, and I'm honored, honored every time I go. Anytime anybody asks me, I'm honored to go. But I, I'm ready to stay home. I'm not losing my vision. I want to see a 1,000 people here in Bossier and worshiping God under our banner. If we counted everybody that's gone out from our ministry and their congregations and church plants, we might have a 1,000. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I want a 1,000 people here. Mm. I want a 1,000 people worshiping 
And I may have a few good years left if God continues to provide me enough good health. I may have. I have a brilliant team around me. Uh, people like Levi, who's recently come on our staff, that's just... I just I don't I don't see why we're not going to do it. Yeah, no reason. I, literally, no reason. I, I just uh, I think we're going to do it. Absolutely. I want to. I love Brother Bernard, the greatest leader in my lifetime for our movement. I'm not downplaying anybody we've ever had. Yeah. I, I mean, I respected everybody in my lifetime: Stanley Chambers, N. A. Urshan, Kenneth Haney, and David Bernard. Uh, these great leaders and the secretaries and all these people, but. David Bernard has cast, it's, it's just been amazing. And the one thing I've loved about him, two things I've loved about him, he's promoted women in ministry and he's promoted young ministers. He started bringing young ministers to conference immediately and giving them 20 minutes. That's awesome. And these guys are tearing it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I could start naming a bunch of them. I won't do it because somebody may listen to this podcast that he didn't name me. But that's not what it's about. And this is a team thing. I messaged Jaron Carney, preached at conference. Uh, I kind of shared it with our church Sunday night. The old men and the young men have got a dream together. Right. And I am full of dreams. Jesus. But I want these young men to preach me out of the pulpit. Amen. Let's pray right now for POBC. Let's pray for that that explosion of, of, of Father in Jesus' name. God, right now, not a day like today. This is the last day. Great things for what you're doing, Father. God, we know there's such a mighty revival. Father, right now, we speak of Father's being a release. We prophesy to that next generation. We prophesy to every young minister, every calling, God, every ministry, Lord, that is sitting in the current center, even right now. Now, Father, Lord, we pray that they will be launched, oh God, catapulted, every man, every woman, Father. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. We worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All righty, I'm out of coffee, so the podcast is over. This is awesome. Indeed, it was awesome. And don't you feel like you could just get a glass of sweet tea and sit on the front porch in a rocking chair with Bishop Dean and listen to him tell stories for hours? He just has that that way of of communicating and telling stories that I feel like is is almost becoming lost uh, in his generation. Um, I mean, that's that's what they did with their spare time and all their time really was just tell stories, and you can hear that. And when he opened up about his struggles with people early on in his ministry, there was there was seriously like something that moved in that room as he opened up. And I pray that it helps you on some level. It doesn't matter your level of comfortability with people. God can use anyone for his kingdom. It's just a matter of plugging into your purpose. And I want to give special thanks to Bishop Jerry Dean and Levi Golden for helping us out for this edition of Timothy's Table. And I want to thank you for listening. I truly hope that it helped encourage you and equip you on, on, in some way uh, because we believe that ministry is not just for one. Ministry is for all. And there is something for everyone in God's kingdom. If you enjoyed this, do me a massive favor and subscribe to the Timothy Network for future editions of both the Timothy's Table as well as the Timothy Project with Aaron and even sometimes his wife, Amanda Holloway. And if you know anybody that 
would enjoy this, feel free to share it with them. Once again, my name is Taylor Fairbanks, and I hope that you feel full as you leave from Timothy's table. Until next time.